started a new series, uh, Kingdom Life in a Fallen World. Jesus came and he, he went up on the mountain and preached this uh, sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's all about this kingdom life that is coming to the world and how do we live this kingdom life in the fallen world. And so we looked at the first three Beatitudes and now we are going to look at the second three Beatitudes, um, which are uh, right afterwards. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew 5, 6 through 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was opening weekend for the blockbuster smash The Hunger Games which opened on Friday and then yesterday. Did anyone go see The Hunger Games? Oh, and we're not going. okay. Some movie files are here. Okay, open made $68.3 million this past weekend from the top four grossing opening weekends of all time. And it's based on this, uh, this book, The Hunger Games, by Suzanne Collins, which was a number one uh, in the New York Times. And it uh, takes place in this apocalyptic world where there's been some sort of revolution and the world has been consolidated in one central government that keeps the people enslaved by keeping them impoverished and hungry, living right on the edge of starvation. And they're broken up into these districts. And once a year, they pick a child, aged 12 through 18, I think, from each district, and they come together and they fight. And whoever wins is guaranteed to never have to hunger again. He receives a big house and all the money that he needs. And so each district sort of gets behind their person. And he represents them. He represents the life that they're looking for. A life of ease. A life of promise. A life where they will never have to hunger again. I read this book and as I thought about this concept of the Hunger Games. By the way, let me stop there real quick. There's another great movie that opened this weekend that I encourage us all to go see. It's called October Baby which is a, a very poignant story that treats the, the subject of abortion very sensitively, but deals with it. There's a lot of pain and issues about abortion. And this is a movie that was put out that really shows the love of Christ to all in the midst of this issue. And so I encourage you, if there are films that the church should support, this is one of them, October Baby. But I get back to the Hunger Games. Why am I talking about the Hunger Games in a sermon? And the reason I'm talking about the Hunger Games as a sermon is, is I thought to myself, you know what, life is kind of like the Hunger Games. In a way, that we're all out there in this game, this race, looking for food that will satisfy. Now in America, no one goes hungry. We're one of the richest countries in the world, or I should say few people go hungry. But you know, there's a greater <coughs> poverty than simple hunger. It was Mother Teresa that said, we think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked, and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. So there's a hunger games going on in the world that we're looking for something that will satisfy the emptiness of our soul. The games are on. The question is, where can we go to find fullness of our souls? And so we play the Hunger Games every day, going from place to place, person to person, thing to thing. And yet in these Beatitudes that Christ preaches, He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness.
for they will be satisfied. Now what is Jesus talking about here? Remember these Beatitudes, they're not prescriptives. This is not a how-to list from Jesus. A how-to of what we achieve. Rather, it's about what we receive. It's about this kingdom life that people who embrace Christ enter into. In fact, not so much as us entering the kingdom life, but rather the kingdom life entering us. That we can live this kingdom life even now in a fallen world. And these beatitudes are like facets of a diamond that God is remolding us into as we are new creations. And so the question we have to examine today is how do we manifest these? How do we enjoy them? See, we're called to participate in this kingdom life. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed that God has planted in our hearts that is growing up. But God wants us to work in tilling the soil, in cultivating the life that is growing up within us. And so we have a part to play. And so Christ's message in this Sermon on the Mount is splitting between the life of the world and the life of the kingdom. What Christ is in effect saying to us is this, if we hunger for the world, it will always lead to emptiness. But if we hunger for God, it will always lead to satisfaction. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, uh, coming up. There are three points that I want to make. The first is about hunger. Number one, hunger proves that we want God. The fact that we have hunger proves that we want God. Point number two, mercy proves that God wants us. If hunger proves that we want God, mercy proves that God wants us. And then finally, number three, seeing God proves that we will both receive, both God and us, what we are looking for, which is each other. So let's look at our first point. Number one, hunger proves that we want God. Jesus in his Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus uses an illustration that everyone could understand in the ancient Near East. Because the people that he was talking to were perpetually on the edge of starvation. This was an agrarian economy that they lived and died based on how the harvest was. In fact, many of the people in his audience, it was based on the wages of the day. They would get paid and be able to buy the food that they needed for that day. If they didn't get paid, they would go hungry. And so they can understand this concept of hungering and thirsty. We can, not to the degree perhaps that they can, but we all understand hunger, don't we? Okay, we all had breakfast this morning. Maybe you didn't have breakfast, and right during my sermon, you start to feel a little bit of that growling of the stomach. A little bit of an emptiness. There's something we need to go to get filled. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. <coughs> the point that we all understand is that everybody hungers. I mean, if you look at all the songs that have been written, all the movies in America, they're all about hungry, aren't they? Looking for satisfaction. I think of my favorite group of theologians, the country music uh, group Alabama. <laughs> Fantastic theologians. They wrote a song, if you remember, I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really want to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and I don't know why. 
See, they're, on, they're doing the 100 games, running from place to place, hungry for something, not exactly even sure what it is. Now, one of the points I want to make that's important is that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. Does he? We love happiness in America. In fact, we, we hold these three inalienable rights to be true, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, it's interesting. If you look at what Jefferson was trying to say when he wrote that, it wasn't about an individualistic happiness. It was about a happiness, a civic happiness of society based on courage, moderation, and justice. But it's been co-opted by America into a hedonistic personal pleasure, a personal happiness. But Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. Because the fact is you can't find happiness. You'll look for it, but you can't find it because happiness is a byproduct. Jesus also doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. Who want blessing. No, he doesn't say that either. He says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is he talking about, this word righteousness? Righteousness is a very powerful word used all the time in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you really want to boil down what righteousness is, this would be a good synonym explanation. Righteousness is conformity to a norm. Conformity to a norm. What do I mean by that? Well, many of us, here's an illustration, many of us have cell phones, right? You ever wonder how your cell phone is always on time? Always the correct time. How does that happen? We never put in the time. The reason is all of the cell phone companies, the towers, are synced to uh, the atomic clock, to Greenwich Mean Time. See, they're all keeping track. They're all conformed to a norm. And as a result, they're in sync with it. See, righteousness is conformity to the character and commands of God. Blessed are those who hunger for the norm, the standard, the character and commands of God. Righteousness has three components to it. I love that the cell phone just went off. I didn't plan that, by the way. I always worry as a pastor that my cell phone's going to go off. Wouldn't that be kind of funny? Whatever the case, I'm distracted. Character and commands of God. Okay, righteousness has three different components to it. The first is our desire to be found as righteous. See, it's a profound dissatisfaction between where we are and where God is. Our desire to be synced with God, His character and commands. That's the first part of righteousness. But the second part of righteousness is this. We not only want to come into conformity with God, we want to live out in conformity with God. Walking in righteousness with His steps, point by point, minute by minute. But there's a third aspect of righteousness as well. And that is we not only want to be righteous, we want to see the world as righteous. Our desire is to see a world that is in conformity, in sync with who God is and His character. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness of God. Notice that this command is not about us, it's about Him. See, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness is about us. In fact, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness is about us. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is about Him. I think of the words of the psalmist in 119. Oh, how I love your law. 
I meditate on it all day and night. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all of my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. How sweet are those who hunger. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. See, blessed, he's a, he hungers and thirsts for the righteousness of God. The question we have to examine as we sit here today is how do we develop this hunger? Keep in mind that the Beatitudes are not a how-to, but we must cultivate this hunger. See, the Beatitudes are like dominoes that fall place in place with one another and build on one another. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, when you have a poorness of spirit, when you have a dissatisfaction with being out of sync with God, it leads us to mourning, right? For they will be comfort, comforted, which leads us to meekness, being, looking to God rather than looking to ourselves, which leads us to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It was John Piper that said, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. See, there's a big difference between being full and being satisfied. We've all become familiar with the term empty calories, eating garbage in order to fill up, but never truly being satisfied. I think of a friend of mine, uh, it was a cousin of my wife, Leellen, his name was Clyde. Real neat guy, he was about uh, 15, 10 years younger than Leellen. Clyde Mays was his name, he was a very special kid. He uh, loved fish, he had a great sense of humor. But Clyde was born with a devastating disease. It's called Prater-Willi's Syndrome. Basically, he had a defective chromosome. And there were several different uh, things, uh, symptoms of, that occurred from this chromosome. The first was he had a low IQ. He was not very smart, about 70 uh, was his IQ. But the second, the most devastating part of Prater-Willi syndrome is you always feel hungry. Ever since he was a child, he never felt full. And as a result, these people that have Prater-Willi syndrome don't live long because they keep eating. And they become morbidly obese, and they will, they will ultimately die. And so it was his mom's job to, literally they had a lock on the refrigerator, to monitor and care for what he ate, because he ate discriminately. Well, Clyde lived a very long and full life, or prayer really uh, a syndrome people, I, I, you know, he lived well into his teens. But as he got older and older, more and more independent, his, Mom couldn't watch over him, and one day Clyde's desires overcame him, and he ate the wrong food, and he kept eating, and he kept eating, and the result of it was he died. See, Clyde's enemy was his genes himself, desiring the wrong things and eating them to the point that it killed him. The question we have to ask for ourselves, if the kingdom life has entered us, what are you and I hungry for? Whenever I run a marathon and do marathon training, you know, do these long runs, and about mile 16 or 17, you'd be absolutely empty. And the visions of food would begin to dance in your head. 
as you thought of all the wonderful things that if you could just run to the nearest restaurant, you could eat in. What do, what do we think about when we're hungry in our souls? Maybe you're a teenager. You live your life thinking, gosh, if I could just be noticed, if I could just sit at that particular table with those people, if I could just make that particular team, the cheerleaders, the track team, the whatever, if I could just hang out with that particular crowd, then I would be satisfied in my heart. Maybe you're a spouse and you yearn and long for the approval of your husband. You do things for him. You, you bend over backwards. All you want is for him to acknowledge you and to love you and to communicate to you. If I could only have that, then I would be full. But the scriptures are saying, no, no, no. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So we have to examine ourselves. Where do I place my hunger? It was Martin Luther that said, the problem with mankind is simply this. He's incurvatus. He's turned in upon himself. But Jesus says, place your hunger on me. And I will satisfy. Come, all you are thirsty, says Isaiah. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. See, we have to put down one food in order to take up another. If you don't put down what you're eating, you can't take up the other. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet that a man prepared. And he invited many of his guests. And he said, come for everything is ready. The butcher, the butcher cab is ready. All of my feast is ready. Come in and enjoy. But they all alike began to make excuses. I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry. And he said, go out quickly into the streets and alleys, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind. Sir, the servant says, what the order has been done, but there is still room. The master said, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you the truth, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my man. Jesus has set the table this very life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you have hunger and thirst for righteousness, it proves that you want God. But the second beatitude, my second point is this, that mercy proves that God wants us. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now this is important, by the way, if you want to understand what Jesus is dealing with you, the beatitudes are kind of like a mountain. And the top of the mountain is this one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All of the beatitudes before are building to that. Deal with our relationship with God. But they start to translate now into our relationship with the world. Blessed are those, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, what is mercy when you think about it? 
Mercy. What is mercy? We know grace. What is mercy? Well, grace deals with the problem of sin. But mercy deals with the consequences of sin. See, grace is the desire of God to eliminate the problem of sin. But mercy is the desire of God and man to eliminate the consequences of sin that we see all around us. Probably the best example of this was the Good Samaritan. Remember the good old Good Samaritan? An expert in the law stands up in front of Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But the expert wanted to justify him and said, so he asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this story about this person who was walking along and he gets, you know, a band of robbers jump on him. They beat him up. They leave him for dead. They take all of his things and he's lying on the side of the road. And a priest walks by and basically crosses to the other side. Doesn't want to deal with it. Then a Levite, another religious person, comes by and doesn't want to deal with it. But along comes this Samaritan. Remember, Samaritans and Jews, a lot of civil strife there. They don't deal with one another. But the Samaritan sees this Jew lying in the road and it says that he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and water on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, so that means he spent the night, the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for whatever other expenses you have. And now Jesus said, now which of these three do you think was a neighbor? to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. See, mercy was this, that this Samaritan saw the consequences of sin in this man's life. It wasn't even his sin. It was the sin of the world that was put on him. The word, sickness of, had compassion on him. is literally a splagma in the Greek. It's it's when your, your guts, you feel it deep in your guts, your guts are stirred to the point that you have to do something. And so this Samaritan crossed racial barriers. He crossed financial barriers. He crossed time barriers. That his mercy and his love, it intertwined. Mercy is such a God-like characteristic. Jesus said, be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. See, this but we have to ask ourselves when we look at this passage, because it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Is Jesus basically saying, Look, if you show mercy, God's going to give you mercy. But if you don't show mercy, you're not going to get any mercy. Now that's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is the inside of one's heart coming outside into one's actions. We don't control our Christianity. Our Christianity controls us. This is why Jesus went after the Pharisees. Remember? You whitewashed tombs. You're so beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You care about the outside. Clean the outside of the cup. But he says, you hypocrites. You clean the outside, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then outside 
will also be clean. See, the reality is that mercy is a mirror. It's an outward manifestation about what's going on inside. Remember the story in Luke 18? Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a man who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So he brought in a God who owed him 10,000 talents, about the equivalent of several million dollars, and more probably than the revenue of the entire kingdom this guy owed the king. And he said, pay me what you owe me. The guy, of course, couldn't pay. And so the, the king ordered that he and his children and his wife be sold into slavery to at least try to defray a portion of the debt. The man fell on his knees, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. And it said that the king was moved with compassion, slagged him up. And he not only defrayed, he not only postponed payment, he canceled it. And he let the man go. But then this man walks out and immediately he sees someone who owes him a hundred talents, about twenty bucks. And he starts choking him. Pay me back what you owe me. And he sent the guy to prison until he could get his twenty dollars back. When the servants of the king heard this, they were tremendously distressed. And the king hauls the guy back in. And what does he say? You wicked servants. Did I not cancel this debt that you could not pay? And here you go out and do this. Have you not forgotten what I've done? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, the story of mercy is the story of the gospel, isn't it? A group of people who can't pay for the debt that they owe God. And God who cancels the debt because he's moved with compassion. And so the gospel should move us. It was Rodney Stark, the professor of history at the University of Washington, that wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he argues that one of the main reasons for the success of Christianity, this tiny sect that basically dominated the Roman Empire within 400 years, was about the care and mercy of Christians. He noted that during the late Roman period, there were a number of devastating plagues. And these plagues coincide with some of the most prolific growth of Christianity. Basically, what would happen is when the plague came, everybody would scatter. But the Christians would stick around and they would care for their own. And they would even care for people who were not believers. And that so impacted people that they came to Christ. They literally gave their life in mercy for others. I'll always remember a family, Norm and Georgia Brinkman, for the mercy that they showed to me. I was in college in Charlottesville, University of Virginia, far away from my family, and uh, I was uh, training to run a marathon, and I kept getting sick all the time. I wondered what it was, you know, so I didn't really get into my training. But I went out and I ran this marathon. Well, it turned out I had mono. And you don't want to run a marathon with mono. That is a bad combination. The problem is I didn't know I had mono because they had misdiagnosed it at the, the quack shack, is what we call it, okay, at the, the NBA Medical Center. So about 30 days after I ran this marathon, my, my immune system cratered. And for the next year, I could not get healthy. I would get healthy and back to bed again and again and again. 
One of the darkest periods in my time because no one could explain what was wrong. And along came Norman Georgia Brinkman. Because I just, I'm living in this, you know, apartment with these other guys. My family's nowhere near me. I have no one really to care for me like family. And so they took me in. And I stayed at their house for a while. They gave me a room where I could sleep and study. They fed me. They cared for me. In my deepest time of being, they gave me the gift of mercy. See, the truth of the matter is, my friends, mercy costs. It costs our time, it costs our heart, it costs our money. So where are we going to get the money to have mercy? The money is the gospel of Jesus. See, Jesus is the good Samaritan, and we're the guy lying on the side of the road. When everybody else walked by, Jesus was moved to compassion. And he came over, and he bandaged us, and he cared for us. He paid for us. He gave our very, his very life. And so mercy is the proof that God wants us. So we must look into the mirror of mercy. It's easy to become overwhelmed with all the problems in the world. But we see in the story of the Good Samaritan that this guy wasn't worried about all the problems in the world. He was worried just about the person who was right in front of him. Mercy demands a response. How merciful are you? What about people who have wronged you? Who owe debts that they can't repay. How we respond reveals who we are. This is supernatural. This is the kingdom life. If you don't feel mercy, if you are not experiencing mercy right now, what do you do? We must go to the cross. It's easy to forget, isn't it? What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So we must go to the cross every day, kneeling at the cross. See, that's why we pray. It's why we read God's Word. Because we have to sit in front of Jesus and remember, blessed are those who have been shown mercy, because they will give mercy. Before you can go out with your Christian life and preach the gospel to other people, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. Reflecting His goodness and His mercy. Before you can focus on what you need to do, you need to focus on what He has done. And stay there until Christ moves you to mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This brings me to my final point. If mercy proves that God wants us, this final point, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God shows that we both get what we want. See, the deepest desire of man is to see God. We want to see God. You know, think about if you've ever fallen in love. When you love someone, you want to see them, don't you? I had the great privilege of marrying uh, Alex and Marissa recently. One of the great things about being a minister is you have the best seat in the house. And you know, Alex couldn't see Marissa before they got married, but I could go see them both and their anticipation to come and get married. And I got to witness that beautiful 
picture when Alex sees her for the first time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But who can see God? Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And it goes on to explain what a pure heart is. He who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear what is false. See, purity of heart actually means an undivided heart. It's one solitary, single-mindedness to it. Remember David, the man after God's own heart, who one day was walking along the top of his palace and saw a beautiful girl bathing, and he lusted after her, and he had to have her? His heart was devoted to God, but instead it moved to this woman. He had a divided heart. But David was finally moved to repentance, and what did he say, Lord? Create me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, there are many people that say, well, how do I do this? How do I keep a undivided heart? Some would say, we have to withdraw from the world. The monastic life. It's this world's problem. It's the Bathshebas of the world tripping us up. We've got to go to the desert. Well, that doesn't work. Good luck with that. You still have your heart out in the desert. Maybe it's just, I've got to live right. I've got to live. Remember what Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to enter maimed. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. But no, Jesus isn't talking about living right, because these problems are the problems of the heart, aren't they? Cutting off your arm isn't going to stop you from lusting in your heart. No, there's only one way to get a clean heart, and that's to acknowledge that you don't have one. Blessed are the pure, poor in spirit, for they will see God. I saw this story, came across my desk a little while ago. It's about a little boy. This was in the Daily Mail in London. This boy with a rare heart condition actually dies five times a year. His name is Aaron Sweeney. A mother has revealed how she has to bring her son back from the brink of death five times a year due to his rare heart condition. He has a heart condition where his heart will stop, can stop up to seven minutes each time he suffers a collapse. He's only alive thanks to his mother, Joanne Clark, who has been trained to revive her son using a handheld defibrillator, which she keeps with her 24 hours a day. See, his, his heart is stopped almost every month. It stops. And so she must jump his heart. So they realize there's only one thing we can do to fix this. And he's undergoing an operation to fit a small permanent defibrillator under his skin that will trigger automatically if his heart fails to begin again. See, we have to acknowledge the simple fact that our heart is divided. That our heart is not pure. Because that leads us to Jesus who said, I know that. And so that is why I'm going to be with you and give you my heart. <coughs> Jesus is the only one who's ever walked this earth with an undivided heart. And the gospel is the fact that Jesus' life has been implanted into us 
so that when our heart fails, his heart will not, his heart will not let us go. And so we must look to Jesus when our heart is divided. We must look to Christ. Christianity is for broken people. We must, in the moment, day by day, look to our defibrillator, Jesus Christ. What are you counting on? Did you come here to hear about religion? Did you come here to hear about church? Hold out to you something greater than that. Jesus Christ, the one who purifies our hearts. See, the beauty is every day Aaron Sweeney gets to look upon his mother, the one who saved him. And every day we get to look upon Jesus, the one who saved us, and the one who gives us life moment by moment. The Hunger Games are on. But the fact is we've already won them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they will be filled. The hunger for this world will always lead to emptiness, but the hunger for God will always lead to satisfaction. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. It's you who have put this hunger, this spiritual hunger in our hearts, and it is you who satisfies it. Lord, give us the grace to cultivate this kingdom life that you put in us. Lord, help us to set down these other things that we gorge on, that are so empty, that we might take hold of that which is truly life. You are the ones who fill our hearts. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.